Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Janelli and I don't have anything funny to say. Andrew, are you funny? Um I think so. I've I've made a joke or two here and there. Um especially on on Twitter. It's where I make a lot of jokes. Made okay. made some good jokes uh, the day we're recording this. Carrie, are you funny? Actually, Carrie's very funny. Yeah, I, I've got a I've funny. got a whole Twitter resume ready. So <laughs> I, the, the the latest one is photoshopping Belzenlock onto the back of uh, the Thran novel, and some people didn't get what you had changed. <laughs> yeah, and some people were planning the same exact thing, so we're all on the same wavelength. All right, so uh, today there's there's. Uh, I, I, I'm not sarcastic this time. We're going to be talking about Magic Story Dominaria, Episode 1. The story is actually called Return to Dominaria, uh, according to the the first episode. Uh, but before we get into that, let's talk about a little bit of news and a little bit of the previews that we've gotten so yeah, far. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to talk about today. Um, real quick, uh, surprise! We got the full reveal for Signature Spellbook Jace, which is the new product line that's replacing from the vault as this kind of WPN exclusive collector's item. So we get eight new cards, all featuring Jace art with a new Jace-themed border, some new Jace flavor text, um, and then one extra card that's a random one of those eight cards that is also foil. The regular cards are not foil, which I think is cool. Um... This is really neat. If you like Jace, this is a thing you can pick up. The MSRP is 20 bucks, And it doesn't really have the kind of value that the From the Vault series had. So you won't have, like, From the Vaults that your store is going to be selling for $70, $80, $90, like, uh, in the past. Like, like this is... I Like, I get what they were doing with From the Vaults to be, like, a collector's item. But they were at a really high price point for not getting a whole lot of stuff. Like, From the Vault Lore had a huge price tag because it had Umasawa's Jite and uh, Dark Depths. And a lot of the other 13 cards were kind of, eh. Like, they were cool, and some of them had new art. But overall, it was kind of, eh. This has um, the signature spellbook. We have Jace Belair and his original Planeswalker card with his original art. Um and Counterspell, which has his dual decks art. But then the other six cards all have brand new pieces. Um, there's some new flavor text. It's really cool. Like, like this is... If, like, if you have a Jace Fringe Prodigy Commander deck, or if you have just, like, a casual Jace deck, or if you play Brainstorm in Legacy, which you probably do because it's Legacy, um, or just negate and standard like there's there the cards all the cards in here are like good in formats it's really cool generally recurring staples yes it is or generally staples except for threads of disloyalty which people don't really sideboard anymore um it's but. exciting because it is such a great vorthos product the frames yes. customized to a planeswalker the art customized to a planeswalker like for god from like shards of alara until three years ago almost all of my gameplay was um casual decks and i almost always themed mine around a planeswalker so which used to be so like even even just in sets 
planeswalkers are appearing on art so much more since Magic Origins. Um, and this is like hardcore stuff. It's a cool product. I hope it does well because I'd love to see more of these. Um, you know, you know, I'd love to see what they can do with like a Chandra signature spell block and have like classic burn spells and like a red frame with like fiery bits on it or something like that. Um, personally, I'm holding out for Icy, the best planeswalker in the multiverse. Um, <laughs> From the uh, story monster uh, and the duels of the planeswalker 2015. I'm Icy's you. only fan, so I got I got a lot of work to do to get him into that series. All right, and then also this week uh, we got a number. Well, today really we got a, a bunch of new preview cards that today when we'll we're talk recording. About Today when we're recording. It will have been last week when you hear it, because time travel. Into the future. Yeah, just forward at a normal speed. (laughs) 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 All right, so uh, the first one we want to talk about is Sarah Disciple, um, which is a a very cool card because it features a Avon by um, uh, Victor Adama Minguez. And his uh, flavor text. Hi, Victor. I don't know if he listens to us, but hi, Victor. He probably doesn't listen to us. Hi, Victor. Um, (laughs) So the flavor text is really cool because it mentions that uh, modern Dominarian theologians now believe that uh, the ancestor was another uh, form of Sarah, basically, which is neat because it is combining. it's kind of organically the way religions usually do. You know, Christmas was a was not a um, Christian holiday until they tried subsumed the pagans into the faith. As someone uh, of German descent, you're welcome, America uh, and <laughs> Northern Europe um, for all your Christmas traditions. So it's a very cool and like organic way of streamlining streamlining the plane a little bit. Uh, and the implication is, so the ancestor was who the order worshipped. So now that we know a little bit more about what's going on, it's pretty clear that the order or the forward order is definitely a, we suspected it beforehand, but now we know it's definitely a, uh, Sarah specific organization. And under that too, in Possibly addition to the a ancestor, separate sect, yeah, uh, the, um, or, or, because we 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 don't know how how exactly the Sarah religions broken down across the plane, but or how they may have reunified since. So that'll be interesting to see. But the Church of Sarah is now a major the major player or the white aligned religion in Dominaria, yes. Uh, because it appears they've also replaced the Church of Angel Fire, which used to be uh, the the prime church of Benalia, which itself had replaced the church of Sarah before. So uh, it's kind of funny how those things work. The next card we want to talk about is Urza's Ruinous Blast. Uh, And for those of you who don't already know what this is, um, this depicts, it's kind of a stylized depiction of the end of the Brothers War when Urza activated the the Golgothian Silex. And you can see in the artwork, there's this giant explosion on the face of Dominaria. It's in, it's like set almost in space. You can see the two moons of the plane behind it and like shockwaves down below on the plane. 
And then you see Urza there, who is in his most recent purple garb, uh, the one most people would recognize him so in. So the one is... from the Frexane invasion? Right, from yeah. the, the Weatherlight Saga is probably the better way to put it. Okay, so the, the um, last time Dominarians knew Correct, Urza was the alive. last time Dominarians would have seen Urza is the outfit we see there, which is the last time most players would have seen him too, so right. uh, it makes sense. His staff is also the most recent version of his staff for the same reason. Uh, and then he also has the Golgothian Silex with him. Yeah, um, what's cool about this is um, these are we now have legendary sorceries, which is a new mechanical thing that can only be cast when you control a legendary creature or permanent. Um, and they've got the new legend frame, so you're reminded that it's legendary. Uh, but what's really cool is this is kind of kind of the imagining of the event like like so so this whole this set's whole theme is history and you know we talked about the sagas last week as about how they represent stories from dominari's past the the legendary sorceries are kind of these big um plane altering events that people in dominari remember and like we're not seeing urza as he looked at that event and we're not seeing this event as it probably actually happened, we're we're kind of seeing it through modern Dominarian eyes as how they think it might have happened. Uh, you know, the 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 same way. I'm blanking on an example off the top of my head, but like we do this in the real world too. Like we think about, like we tell stories about how you know cavemen were dumb and grunted, and um, but cavemen were just as smart as modern humans and had languages like modern humans and did all sorts of inventive things with tools like modern humans. Um, so this is kind of this weird historical take. But what I love about it is that through all these stories that have persisted, Ursa's still nuking continent with a magic punch bowl. Um <laughs> like like when when I when I first heard the story I love that they have never changed that it's great like like when i first read the story like because that that the whole brothers war thing was before i happened long before i was playing magic so when i was catching up with magic's lore and story and i was reading about this i was like oh cool so he was an artificer fighting his artificer brother and they had all these war machines so the golgothian silex must have been some awesome war machine that nuked this continent uh and then i found out later that it's just it's just a magic dish (laughs) <laughs> like that's it um yeah it's pretty great which i so, think is hilarious so the next card we wanted to talk about well i wanted to talk about was the flame of keld which is another saga it's the second saga we've had revealed uh what i like about it is it is essentially um telling the story of the first keldens uh so it has a a, a picture of this large it's it's all in metalwork with flames in the background so it's like a a metalwork design on a furnace which already tells you a lot about the keldons um but what's cool is it seems to show the story of uh the keldons originally came from a place called parma which was very very cold uh, where they, they have came, parmesan cheese they came to i swear to god <laughs> It's a real region the, in Italy called Parma. That's what Parmesan is named for. I don't know why it's also in Dominaria. It is also a real region in Ohio. It's a small city that I come from. Oh, wow. Congrats. Carrie's a nice Kelden. giant. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the, the, the Keldons had fled 
Uh, they ended up in the mountain range that is now modern day Keld. Uh, they were led by a man named Craddock. Um, and Craddock bonded with this mountain that had this special power and got that Keldon ability, the flame of Keld, uh, which, and he became the first Doyen, uh, which is the first like warlord, the first leader of Keld, essentially. Um, we talked about this in an earlier episode, right? Not, we did. We yeah. did. And so this, this is a reflection of that story. So the next card we want to talk about is Saproling Migration. And I'm going to throw that one to Andrew because he's our Did resident Saproling fiend. Saproling? <laughs> yeah. What do you pronounce saproling. it as? Saproling? Whatever. Saproling Migration. Um, yeah, so Sarpedia, it's great. Uh, that's where Dominare's Saprolings are from. They plopped out of the, uh, the Thalids at first. Um, but... This also this card has the cutest flavor text. Uh, Thalids herd sapperlings from place to place in search of detritus to feed them. So, I, like, I just have this mental image of this huge hulking thalid just like tromping through the forest with all these like tiny little sapperlings just bouncing along after it. Like, it is it's very cute in my head. Um, it's kind of cute on the art depending on how cute you think fungus is. Um, but what is interesting about this art? This is now the fifth different sapperling design we have seen on Dominaria. Um, Sapperlings look different from plane to plane. If you pay attention, you can tell by looking at a sapperling token or a card that makes sapperlings what plane it's from. Um, And what I like is how diverse Dominaria sapperlings have been. The first ever tokens in Magic um, for Fallen Empires Sapperlings first appeared. Uh, and by, by first ever tokens, I mean first ever physical token products. They came with the copy of the magazine, the Duelist. They had a whole bunch of counters, like, because uh, old cards used to have all sorts of weird counter shapes. So there's like a plus one, a plus two, plus one counters, you know, plus one, plus oh counters, plus oh, plus one counters, plus one, plus one counters, minus one, minus one counters. They have. They're just like little a paper yeah. mm-hmm. things. Um, but cards in the set also made five different tokens. Uh, one one goblin, one one red goblins, one one green sapperlings, uh, one one white citizens, zero one black thralls, and one one blue camerits. So they just had punch out card tokens. And uh, the, the sapperlings there were kind of tentacled puffball funguses. Uh, puffballs... Most funguses, fruiting bodies, have mushrooms which open up and you have the gills underneath and they billow out spores. Puffballs are just kind of these solid ball-shaped things, and then as they dry out, they crack and a whole cloud of spores pops out. Um, So they're kind of derpy-looking. Then during Invasion, saplings had a cohesive design where they were kind of just toothy worm things. Um, they weren't really plant-like at all, but th- these were the these were the weirdest ones, I think, because they're like not planty flavored at all. They're just kind of monstrous. But we got a physical token for them through the old Magic Player Rewards program. Um, they're very hard to come by, so if you have them, congrats, they're great. Hmm. Um, back when tokens had flavor text, then so, in oh god. Uh, 10th edition, we got kind of a variation on the toothy sapperlings, um, except it's like all plant material and the heads are kind of like little Venus flytraps. 
Um, Dual Dex Rexia versus the Coalition gave us kind of quadrupedal plant-like viney saplings, and then we finally in Dominaria are getting these mushroomy fungal crawling on a bunch of little mycelium type saplings. Very excited to see what the token looks like. Token art's always fun. It'll be cool, and we know there's a, a major thalid theme uh, that we're not really going to get into because we don't want to talk about the... There's the lots of stuff in the FAQ. If, That's if, good. If you like saplings and you like thalids, I think you're going to be happy with the set. Um, yeah. <laughs> also, the card name migration. I'm interested to see where thalids ended up on Dominaria. Um, yeah, that is that is a good point. Be- because... because like, like we only know them from Sarpedia, and they show up all over Time Spiral Block, but they never really show up in the story, so we don't know if those Thalids and Time Spiral Block are showing Sarpedia at the time of the mending, or if they've managed, like, spores have drifted overseas, which seems unlikely because Sarpedia is, like, really far away from everything. Um, so speaking of Sarpedia, that, uh, that's a good opportunity to talk about the, uh, the, the map. map. We so have a lo- map. Yeah, so we have had, there's probably been over a dozen maps made of Dominaria over the years, but no maps have ever been made of all of Dominaria together until now. Uh, so they had Jared Blando, who is the, uh, the same guy who did the Ixalan map for the continent. Uh, he did a full Dominarian map, which it just looks amazing. I, I want the high res of it. I so know. Bad. I so badly. I want to, I want like the high little, res little, and then I want to cut it up and then I want to put all a bunch of, of little dots in it. Yeah. I want to see, <laughs> I want to see how many mountain rangers and forests and plains and swamps. And I want to, I want to see where they laid everything out because we're going to be able to cross reference the physical map with all want, the oh. stories in magic's history. <laughs> Yeah, and I want to overlay it with all of the old maps, although it might not work exactly because all the maps aren't necessarily the same kind of projection because Dominaria's layout was originally done from a globe. And I don't know enough about map making to talk about that. So let's just talk about real quick. The thing I wanted to, to say is what um, we got most. We've seen most of this before, and we've actually seen how most of this relates. But I would say the easternmost quarter of this map from Otaria to Terissier to Sarpedia, uh, even greater Videnth were not something we saw on an official map before, at least how they relate to anything else. Otaria is the really weird one. So, we so got... yeah. So Otaria is like, we've never, we've never seen it with the rest. So there was, there was the, there was a really simple map of it in, I think, one of the novels. Yeah, it just got slapped in the front or back of. It Which looks, this looks it just nothing looks like, like a big chicken nugget. <laughs> um, <laughs> it does. Uh, so but it looks like, like Otaria worked know... out real hard and got beefy, and or well, got skinny. Well, and, and <laughs> we didn't know like exactly where it was. Like so, so for the last uh, almost seventeen years. Like a lot of a lot of attempts at fan maps have been made, and and from what we knew, we assumed Otario was like pretty far south, um, which is like in an earlier podcast I made a joke about Dominaria having two Australias, Otaria and Sarpedia. Well, today we can officially bury that joke because Otaria is like right in the middle of the world and right next to Terra Sierra. Um, not at all where we thought it was. 
Yeah, strange um, because it was never for, you know, Tercier was the focus of most of early magic and Otaria was never mentioned, but that's just because we, we all know Otaria was invented later. It's, it is yeah, what it is. Yeah, the, the, What's it's, cool- it's the, oh, why didn't they talk about this earlier? Because it didn't exist yet. That's not how yeah. storytelling <laughs> and world building works. Well, what it looks like they did, and I'm curious to see because uh, Kelly Diggs and Ethan Fleischer are, I'm sure, going to talk about this a lot. And Ethan said, mentioned that he has an article coming about at this. What's cool is they fused Otaria with a very, very early Dominaria continent called uh, Tamingazin or Tamingazin. I'm not sure how you're supposed to pronounce it, uh, which I'm, has blown a lot of old schoolers minds because everyone thought it was a different continent. Uh, but they arranged it in such a way that the old map fits on the new Otaria map. Um, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, they. Uh, um, I think Ethan mentioned that uh, he and Kelly talk about the map and um, a lot in their official Magic Story podcast thing that's happening in April. So very interested to hear all about that. Yeah, if you like our podcast, let me tell you, there is... No way we could come even close to as deep diving as Ethan and Kelly are. Not just because, you know, Kelly is, you know, Kelly's headcanon can be canon. <laughs> Our headcanons are well, just headcanon. They also get Ethan. paid to do it. They get paid to do it. Yeah, if, it was my full ta- if it was my full Ethan's time job involved really... digging into magic lore, you know, I could be that deep too. We should also mention there's a 20, no, 15-year-old fan map. Uh, Pete Venters, after he had left Wizards of the Coast, Pete had created a globe for Dominaria's map uh, in, like, real detailed down to continents. We talked about that before, though, I believe. Uh, down to um, tectonic plates, I mean. And uh, Pete, after he had left, came into this thread on Magic the Gathering Salvation uh, that was about geography and spent uh, pages and pages of threads trying to describe from memory <laughs> to people <laughs> how to uh, align the Dominaria map. And so there's this fan map that's actually really, really accurate. Like, Terrissier isn't perfect. Otaria isn't perfect because they didn't close. combine it with uh, Tamangazan. But it got, yeah, it got really close. It got really close. I, I do know the fan map did have... Uh, it the fan that fan map is one of the ones that has Otaria way down south where we thought it was. Um, it also had Sarpedia not directly south of Terrasier, which was like like the one thing because I have I have laser focus on Sarpedia. There's because the Hammerage traveled to Terrasier um, during the Flood Age because of this huge underwater canyon uh, that got torn into the tectonic plates because of the Silex blast. And on that fan map, it's very hard to figure out where that trench ran. In this now official Dominaria map, it's very clear that trench just goes north-south, right up to Terracia from the north of Sarpedia. Yeah, the night we're recording this, I have just posted like uh, something showing the migrations around the map. Where the 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 Murpho yeah, from it, it the Valdalian makes the, Murpho the Valdalian retreat cowardly retreat make a lot more <laughs> geographical sense. Also, all right. Well, I think that's enough. We can gush about the map once we have a higher res to look at. 
Let's move into the first story by Martha Wells. Martha does an amazing job on this, by the way. But anyway, real quick, brief overview of the story. Uh, the It opens with the Cabal and uh, the Black Blade being brought for Belzenlock, who is subsuming history. And we're going to get into individual things we liked about that in a second. Uh, and then that's just kind of a hint at what's going on behind the scenes with the Cabal. Uh, then we cut to Joyra, who has a submarine and is underground, uh, I'm sorry, underwater, uh, and has found the wreckage of the weatherlight and is preparing to um, exhume it from the, the ocean. Uh, dredge, thank you, dredge it out. Uh, then we enter the, uh, the Gatewatch just after Hour of Devastation, um, and they are all tired and broken and defeated, and uh, Nyssa immediately almost immediately leaves uh and quits the gate watch which is basically i believe what's going to be our first uh our first story spotlight uh chandra leaves as well but she leaves to get stronger which is going to lead into something else so another big character returning i believe uh hmm. and so gideon and liliana uh head into the town which turns out to be her hometown of Vess, uh and they find that the cabal is assaulting where she lives which is banalia or where she used to live. Uh, and the leader of this cabal regiment that is attacking her former town is none other than her brother, Josu. Dun, dun, dun. Let's dive into some of the, the lore bits here. So first of all, yeah, the cabal. Yeah, a lot of notes. <laughs> uh, so let's start with that scene with the cabal. So the cabal has relocated into the stronghold, which is in a giant volcanic caldera. Uh, on Urborg, it came over from Wrath during the Phyrexian invasion. So we're already the Cabal is already subsuming history here. My note because is I'm sure... all the evil in one place. Yep. There so you go. we have connections to the Phyrexians, uh, the invasion, the Cabal in Urborg, where a lot of terrible people have lived, and Belzenlock, who now leads the Cabal, is. Uh, rewriting history which i think like the whole the whole theme of this set is history boil dominari let's set down to one word history so the perfect villain for this kind of set is a villain who corrupts history itself and belzenlock is is doing uh, so much rewriting of the things that have happened like just in and this is the the story snippet we got um early but like so he's almost immediately referred to as the sign of darkness um which was an actual card an avatar card from the original onslaught block uh the sign of darkness was was said to be an avatar of kuber uh one of who's the the black numena right uh yeah that's right jake and check yeah so uh, one of these super ancient super wizards um, who manifested and sort of ruled the cabal. It got really complicated. That's part of the Corona Let, story. Let's <laughs> just leave. Yeah. One of the minions names is Needle. And uh, all of the cabal had names like that, like Chainer or Braids, because their real names uh, gave people power over them. Uh, Classic so fantasy trope. Yeah, so there's um, the Cabal has a bit of a trope where they have these weird, 
like uh, regular words nouns as their names yeah, yeah regular that describe words. like like braids is named braids because she has braids chainer is named chainer because he wears a bunch of chains um a needle is named needle because she's an assassin i think they mentioned i didn't have a note for that i'm pretty sure she's dead by the end of it so it doesn't yes, really matter it doesn't it does but but like <laughs> yeah understood like even she even, always turn one's pipping needle yeah oh, um but then but what's important is she brings the black blade reforged um and we get some awesome ties back to the old armada comics Um, dacon black blade number one which is in my opinion yeah uh it's not a it's not one of the better comics from that era like it is it is bad it is disjointed but like it's a cool story, so and it confirms two really cool things. First, that Dakon Blackblade was in fact a planeswalker, which Dakon Blackblade being the um, Esper colored card from, from Legends. Legends. Um, yeah, so in the early days of Magic, planeswalking wasn't being a planeswalker was different than it is now, where you're born with a spark and then some kind of incident ignites your spark and now you're a planeswalker. Back then, pretty much anyone who could become strong enough could become a planeswalker. Um, and and uh, as the, story, the stories were to- about planeswalkers, so kind of everyone and their mother gets to be a planeswalker at some point. Like like the the thug that mugs and kills Sarah is just randomly a planeswalker for no reason. Um, so Arena so- and Greensleeves trilogy are the strongest offenders yeah in oh, yeah regard. there's but by no, the what time is it? Got there's to... one there's one not old pre-revision novel that is just like half the planeswalkers on the planeswalker list are from that story yeah and what's tricky is like the pre-revisionist stories are kind of in the state of quasi-canon where like they're true unless they're contradicted elsewhere, and a lot of things are. A lot of pre-revision stuff gets rewritten later. Um, so, like, Dakin was referred to a planeswalker before, but, uh, like, the story hasn't had anything to do with him. So, like, was he really a planeswalker, or was he just one of these super powerful wizards? Well, that debate's over. He's a planeswalker. There's the capital P right here in a story published in 2018. Um, so that's cool. So if you love Dak and Blackblade, which at the character on the card have lots of fans among old school players, um, congrats. One of your favorite characters gets to be a planeswalker. And we don't know what happened. Yeah, I know Shivam had to be like over the moon. Yes. (laughs) Um, but the other cool moment from that comic is Piru, uh, the sixth elder dragon which was their big marketing thing. Um, so there were the for, five Elder Dragons the comic, in Legends. Yeah. And, and the comic was like, well, guess what? We got the sixth Elder Dragon, who was Piru, who was Chromium Rule's mate. Um, Dakin kills Piru and siphons her power into the blade or into what's-her-face? I don't remember. In, into the blade. And then she absorbs it from the blade. It's complicated. Mm-hmm. Gaia Hadra Diadrone or whatever her name is. 
Gage or Antiha. Weird, yeah. weird. It's basically Ursula the Planeswalker. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Ursula from The Little Mermaid. Um, so this is now, you know, and, and that was another pre-revisionist fact that people assumed was not true because, you know, Nicol Bolas's Planeswalker profile on the mothership mentions that he's one of five survivors of the Elder Dragon War. Well, now, in 2018, we know there was officially the sixth. Piru is a real thing, which opens up possibilities, because now we can go back and ask, well, because there's been the question of, is Ugin an actual Elder Dragon Planeswalker, or is he just an old Dragon Planeswalker? And with Piru existing, now we have the question, is Ugin a true Elder Dragon as well? And if he is, are there any others out there? Um, so I should note real quick, there used to be this huge debate as to whether or not Piru was a what's called a lesser elder, which, which was a didn't dis- make any sense. Like, yeah, it, it wasn't anything really in, in canon. It might have been something one of the former story team people said on one of their personal sites. That was a that was a thing for a while or in like some unpublished documentation somewhere. But this kind of helps eliminate that. So Piru is an elder dragon. Whether she's an elder, she's still an elder dragon in the sense of Nicobolus or in the sense of the dragon lords. That's another question. Uh, but she is an elder, which means has a couple specific connotations. She's got like a metaphysical connection to the lesser dragons of her kind. Uh, she's got a metaphysical connection to like the primal nature of dragons, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so getting all this clarity on these kind of is this canon or is this not questions of long magic past. Um, that's cool. So let's move on to Joyra's submarine. Well, Bells and Lock also does pick up some other names in here. Let's let's not ignore oh. Lord of the Wastes. Uh, yeah, that's right. He well, it, I think that goes along a bit. Myth. That goes along a bit with taking the stronghold is that yeah. the Lord of the Wastes was that f- the first name we knew uh, Yagmoth by before we knew the name Yagmoth, Or, I'm sorry, before we knew that Yagmoth and Lord of the Wastes were the same person, I should say, right. at the very, very beginning of the uh, Weatherlight Saga. So, Belsenlach is corrupting history um, because now he has the followers of the modern cabal thinking that he is responsible for Yogmoth stuff, responsible for the old cabal stuff, a slayer of elder dragons. He is building himself up through all these history-altering lies. He is the anti-history yeah. in a block about history. and I just think that's super duper cool. So then we meet Joyra, who has a submarine designed like a fish, which is pretty cool. And it seems that Joyra has a connection to Talaria, because the new Talaria, or Talaria West, I should say, because new Talaria was a boat, um, which kind of explains, we've always wondered where Talaria West came from, uh, and that's a nice connection, uh, and hopefully, maybe we'll see other people we know at Talaria. It seems like the art we've seen of Karn places him in to- the new, this new Talaria West. Yeah, there's... The the trailer went around earlier. Um, I think I retweeted it to our Twitter. But if you haven't seen it yet, go, go watch it. It's really cool. There's lots of cool bits in there. But yeah, there's... Uh, and if you want to know where Talaria West is... Now we have a map that we can just say, hey, go, look, it's there. 
which is like it's, it's one of those little islands in there somewhere. It it well, it's so helpful just for me as a content creator to to be able to just point at a map and say, yes, here, this is where these things we're talking about are. Just look at the map that explains it, and like not have to try and communicate all that through convoluted means that and people who don't then, know Dominaria won't get. Joyra finds the the wreckage of the Weatherlight. Uh, they comment that it's less than they thought, uh, and that might be because Karn absorbed a bunch of it. <laughs> um, but we'll 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 see. So that uh, she has apparently been planning to resurrect the Weatherlight for a long time at this point, uh, and so her plan's kind of finally coming to fruition. So it crashes at the end of Apocalypse, but it's not like it sinks like the Titanic. I mean it crashed into a bay off the coast of Erborg. So it's not like it's like a super diving expedition to get it. But, you know, this is you still have to think in the um uh the idea of fantasy technology. Jordan's submarine is like really impressive. She's like a master artificer. So she's like this is finally a moment where she has the tech to do do this project. So let's switch to the Gatewatches story now and uh, Nissa leaving. Nissa leaves the Gatewatch, which has been foreshadowed since the Oath of the Gatewatch story. And I have been calling for this event for so long and it feels so good that it happened. Um, yeah, Nissa storms off because she is sick and tired of getting used. Um, she's sick and tired of Liliana's betrayal. She, everything has gone wrong and she is done. Um, and she feels like she still has work to do on Zendikar, but there's a great quote. All right. So at the end of Zendikar resurgent, when, when the Gatewatch is getting together and, you know, Nissa starts this, uh, new grove, um, and she has this little intimate chat with Chandra. She says, I don't know if I can leave. The words out of her mouth, Nyssa held her breath. So she, from the very start of the Gatewatch, Nyssa has had this doubt about whether or not joining the Gatewatch was the right decision. Um, the first story for Kaladesh Black was called Homesick, which partly referred to Chandra's return to Kaladesh for her mom, but we also have more this uncertainty in that story. That's the story where she mentions being friends with Zendikar for 40 years and missing being with Zendikar. Um, this is a couple months after that the BFC story is over. Um, but then at the end of Hour of Devastation, she has kind of snapping moment. This is, I'm just going to read the quote. Nissa had never questioned the purpose of the Gatewatch before. There was always an immediate need, wrongs to be righted, evil to be overcome, and it had worked. For so long it had worked. Until now. Until a dragon of immense power and intellect had shown the errors of coming in unprepared and underpowered. Perhaps there was a better way. That's how Nissa's story ends in Hour of Devastation, which is now the last time we have seen her. And... You overthrow one government and you think you can take an Elder Dragon. Well, that that was the whole core of the Gatewatch's arrogance, uh, which Nissa was very uncomfortable with. Um, and, and we got to see her try and break out 
of that discomfort um, through talks with Yeheni and then um, in Kefnet's temple, uh, which is where she got the extra blue part for that Planeswalker card in the Amonkhet block. And that, I think she's recoiling from that. Um, as, as a green Planeswalker, I mean, the color pie dictates that she's going to be uncomfortable with a lot of these drastic changes. And I think she's recoiling and retreating to comforts of Zendikar, where she wants to help rebuild the two continents that were totally destroyed and regrow these trees that were pushed to the brink of extinction. And her leaving, like, like despite all that sense of comfort, I feel like her leaving is still an embodiment of something that she says during the hand that moves, which is that story that took place in Kevnet's temple. And when she's conversing with the Emrakul angel image that she sees in her mind, she says, I can do anything I want, anything at all. So we, so we have Nyssa still poised to be the hand that moves in her own life, apart from the Gatewatch. She's not a pawn in a Gatewatch chessboard against Nicol Bolas. Now she's off playing her own game. So I, I really like the way they've woven the, the kind of more conservative parts of her character and this kind of newfound explorative part. And have them dovetail back into this decision to leave the Gatewatch, um, which has a cool piece of art associated with it, where she is planeswalking away, and you can see her little Oath of the Gatewatch symbol that she makes on Oath of Nyssa, and there's a big crack in the ground right through the middle, and a little weepy little plant. It's the binding sigil for the Eldrazi, we should mention. Yeah, yeah, which was a coincidence. Um, that you know, I had noted at the time. I don't think there's anything significant other than she knows how to bend the ley lines like that, and that's why she chose that as her little glowy thing when she took the oath. Yeah, um, it's just associated with her now, I think. So, um, so does she actually draw that on the ground and then crack it and then walk away after saying all that stuff? I think that's what you call artistic license. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I think what people have to realize, you know, this is something I saw recently, too, is the artwork doesn't have to be 100% canon. Um, well, and it, it, it's okay it if it's meant to, to be, be symbolic. Literal. Like, there's, Magic's had a lot of figurative artwork in the past, um, and this is kind of like a fun little figurative embellishment on what we think is a story piece, one of the story spotlights, so, yeah. So, after Nyssa leaves, uh, Chandra leaves as well, but for, for different reasons. She leaves because she wants she wants to get uh, more powerful uh, because she... Uh, she feels weak. <laughs> she's, she's a red mage. You know, she feels weak because she's been able to burn her way through any problem up until this point. Uh, and, and she is the one person who started to get an edge on Bolas. Uh, that's that's true. Bit. So she's leaving. She shouts that she knows what she's doing at Gideon right before she leaves uh, because he didn't want her to leave. What I think's happening is she's going back to Carol Keep and she's going to find out where Jaya Ballard is. And I think she's going to learn Jaya Ballard was always way closer than she thought. Uh, and that's how Jaya Ballard gets tangled up in the current story on Jaya Magic, Ballard is on Mother Lutie. Dominaria. Yeah, that Jaya Ballard is Mother Luti, which I wrote a big thing on, like, 
last year sometime as soon as we got that first Jaya Ballard artwork. Yeah, a- like, after, I knew it. After the Hour of Devastation story was over, I wrote a piece about the defeat of each of the Gatewatch members and what the next steps in their story and character development are going to be. And I pretty much nailed it. Um, from Jace getting his memory back and learning how to take responsibility to Nissa leaving the Gatewatch and wanting to go back home. Chandra wanting to find more power by going back to Carol Keep. Um, and Gideon was kind of open-ended, but he's going to have to learn how to lead and be a hero at some point. Which seems like a, a good thing to do on Dominaria, a world with a history of heroes. Actual heroes. So, uh, speaking of Gideon, uh, there was a, a very, it was very quick, a very minor note, but it does, the story refers to Gideon as having brown skin. So from the white green eyed Gideon that we first saw on Zendikar, they've kind of finally brought him to the Greek ethnicity, you know, darker skinned, uh, Mediterranean guy that he was, which we got to see so good on his Amonkhet planeswalker. Like, we, we finally, like, this is what an Indo-Iranian Gideon looks like. Um, so I'm, I'm glad Wizards has finally brought that not only into his art, but now into the story. Like, Gideon is Mediterranean, and he should look it, and now he does, and he's described that way. Good. And uh, we also learn that, first of all... Uh, Liliana uh, Vess, her home estate. I'm not sure if it's the township or the region, or um, if it was a barony called Vess. It's probably something similar to a feudal system where yeah. where her family um, shares the name with the region because it's her family's land and, and townships, and there's probably a bunch of knights and peasants that served under right. uh, her uh, father's... And the Caligo forest has turned into the Caligo uh, morass, morass Big uh, thanks to an, the intervention of a, a like or a lich that we'll talk about in a moment. I call it a like because like it's a lycanthrope. But um, we also learned that uh, the as we had correctly guessed, the stained glass is definitely a banalian feature. Uh, and we learned that Josu, the Lich, uh, is enslaved to Belzenlock to the point where Belzenlock knew Liliana was coming. Um, I do want to say that learning that the Caligo Forest in Benalia, this is a mystery that has been set up um, technically since the first Liliana Planeswalker comic. Okay, so we're a decade later and we finally learn where the Caligo Forest is. Um, I was hoping we would have gotten information about it in Magic Origins, but that information was still kept from us. Um, so I'm, I'm like, I'm excited to finally know. Which um, is weird because I, there, there were basically two reasons to keep that information secret. Either they didn't know or they hadn't set it up yet or it was going to be a reveal. But Lily Vess being in, Domino, uh, being in Benalia doesn't really tell us anything. Um, so I guess... I don't know if they were just looking for a, a good place for it and decided to place it there when they had the Dominaria story set well, I, up. I, I think it's interesting that Liliana hates angels and she grew up in one of the big With seats the forward of, order, who are probably of, Church of Sarah. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
So I, th- I think that's 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 fun character irony. But yeah, uh, she kills a cabal um, cultist who's raising these zombies and attacking this little town, and threatens them to 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 talk more about Josu because her brother is still uh, uh, not alive. He's still undead. Um, he's now a powerful, powerful lich lord, um, and this is the only person that Liliana's really ever cared about other than herself. Um, this is the other thing I predicted last summer is that we're going to see Liliana, um, really intense emotions. She's going to really start caring about her brother again, and we're going to see her at rock bottom. And that's what we're seeing, um, which is kind of good because she's kind of a terrible person. So it's good to see her. It feels good to see her, uh, so, so at her end, it feels a, a, a little vindication for how terrible she's been. But, um, so let let's turn. Well, but I just want to say it's important that the cultist says that Belzenlock specifically corrupted her brother with the intent that Liliana would be back. Like that—that's a big story clue that Belzenlock, and you know, we know that Belzenlock is one of the demons that Liliana has a deal with. So, well, we also know that Belzenlock isn't exactly telling the truth uh, <laughs> about everything that he's he done. He could be co-opting somebody else's plans, right? right. So but he might it's... be co-opting the Raven Man or a Bolus plan or something like that. Well, and that's but this is this is hinting, this is building up this confrontation that we know is going to happen. No, we're going to get a Liliana versus Belzenlock by the end of the story. Um, and, and I, I like that they're really playing that up and making it not in Liliana's control. As you know, as a, um, this again plays into the color pie, and, and as a black aligned character, she is very much about defining her own life and choosing her own destiny. And her her whole story from her first meeting with the Raven Man to now has been other people manipulating her through through all sorts of means and and this is just like this is now she's realizing she has fallen into this ultimate manipulation uh through her brother so there's lots of mysteries and this is only the first story and so we're recording this wednesday night and we get a whole nother story tomorrow it's just it's there's there's lots of questions i want the answers it's very exciting dominaria there's hummerid hummerid <laughs> in the set yeah so that's Andrew's final thoughts. Carrie, any final thoughts? Bolas's involvement in Liliana's wider arc is very important. They wouldn't have added him into the story unless he had some grander plan for it. Could be. All right. Well, thank you all for listening well, to I, the I, board. I do want to say because there is another story tomorrow, we are going to be recording another episode, and we are going to have a double week. So at the end of this podcast, just hold tight. There will be another episode. I think we're going to do a Monday, Tuesday release. So this will be the Monday episode, and then there will be one on Tuesday. So make sure you listen to this one first, which I guess if you're at this point in the podcast, um, it's kind of too late to warn you about that. (laughs) Um, All right. (laughs) So too bad. All right. Sorry. Thank you for (laughs) listening to the Vorthos cast.